You may have thought that my story about the um, lady in the mirror was a bit sort of misogynist. Uh, let me correct that. Uh, there was a man who went to see his doctor, and he said, Doctor, there's nothing wrong with me, but I'm very worried because I think my wife is going deaf, and she, she won't listen to me, and she won't believe that. So how can I convince her? So the doctor said, well, this evening, stand a long way away from her, ask her a question, and then when she doesn't answer, take a step forward and go on till, till she hears you. So that evening, uh, he took her about uh, ten yards away and said, uh, what's for supper? Silence. Uh, what's for supper? Silence. Uh, what's for supper? Silence. What's for supper? Silence. What's for supper? Silence. What's for supper? Fish pie, and this is the fifth time I've told you. <laughs> Uh, we've given this title for Chapter 2, City Without Walls, and uh, I want to um, plug again uh, Vaughan Roberts's book, on God's Big Plan, and just remind you of the, the storyline of uh, the Bible. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, were in God's place, uh, under God's blessing, uh, and knowing fellowship with him. And that was all lost through the rebellion, and they were... They were kicked out of paradise and from God's presence. And the whole of the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3.15 onwards, is all about God's rescue operation. And it ends up to Revelation 21 and 22, where paradise is restored. But before that happens, what God does is to provide a scaled model, a sort of prototype. I was in Germany um, back in February or March, I think, and I got my host to drive me to the Mona Dam, where there were the dam busters. And uh, if you've seen the film, you'll remember that um, Barnes Wallace, the, the scientist, saw some ch children skimming stones over the water so that they bounced. And he had the idea that it might be possible to produce a bomb like that. So he had a sort of scaled model in a, in a sort of hangar uh, in London where he, there were golf balls going along at a certain height, at, at certain speed, uh, until he worked out you know, how fast they had to go and at what height a scaled model. And that's what happens in the uh, Old Testament. God is going to produce this a scaled model. And it begins with a, a promise to Abraham, a quad promise. Uh, I'm going to give you a people, going to be the Hebrews, and that's just about achieved by the end of Genesis. Uh, you're going to have a place, that is the land of Canaan. Joshua takes them into Canaan. You're going to have um, a, a, a king, uh, who's going to reign for you and be a blessing to you, and you're to have my protection and uh, be a, a blessing to, to other people. And the covenant is very simple, got two clauses, I will be your God, you will be my people. And the purpose is that others should look at the Hebrews and say, ah, how fortunate they are to have a God like that, so that they are attracted to him. So that was the model. Uh, they had uh, God's people, the Hebrews, in God's place, Canaan, under God's uh, king, who is both a blessing and, and uh, the, the ruler. And that was just the model. And the model had to be destroyed, otherwise people will think that the model is the real thing. This is why the temple had to be destroyed. The temple was a picture of God's presence. Uh, but it wasn't actually God's presence, so it eventually had to be destroyed. The same thing has to happen to marriage. Now marriage is one of the greatest pictures of the relationship that God wants to have with his people. But it is a picture. It's the most wonderful picture. But all marriages actually come to an end, unless uh, there's the tragedy of um, being, both being killed in a car accident. One or other dies first. 
So all marriages come to an end. Otherwise, people will think that this wonderful, wonderful picture is the real thing. Actually, it's pointing to the greater thing, the bridegroom of the Lord Jesus with his bride at the church. So the, the model had to be destroyed, and the children of Israel go into exile. We were reading about that earlier on, the captivity in Babylon. But the prophets go on prophesying. And you'll know that uh, prophecy in the Old Testament has three fulfilments. You know if you look at a range of mountains, they all look at the same place. And then you get to one, you find the mountains behind that, and the mountains behind that. So the prophets have three fulfilments. The first is this going back to uh, Jerusalem, uh, the return from exile. And they began building, rebuilding the temple, but it was a feeble affair. It wasn't anything like the temple that uh, Ezekiel had promised. So much so that the older people who remembered Solomon's temple, that they blubbed. This, is, this isn't it. But they did return. Uh, the second instalment was the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the Hebrew Bible uh, has chronicles as its last book, uh, part of the writings. You know that the Hebrew Bible has the Pentateuch, uh, the former prophets that we think of the history books, the latter prophets, and then the writings. Uh, that would include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Daniel, and Chronicles. And Chronicles ends up with the people still in exile which explains why at the beginning of all four Gospels you have the quotation from Isaiah uh, prepare the way of the Lord a voice of one crying in the wilderness now this promise that was made by Isaiah is now about to be fulfilled as the Lord Jesus comes so that's the second uh, fulfilment the Jews getting back to Palestine as a result of the Balfour Declaration and then 1947 and 1967, is not the fulfilment of the promise. I personally think it's good that the Jews should have a homeland, but that is not actually the fulfilment of God's promise. So nowhere in the New Testament is the land thought of as the, the fulfilment of the prophecy. But that's the second instalment. The third instalment is the coming of the Lord Jesus, when paradise will be uh, regained. And when you come in a couple of weeks' time to Advent, you know that Advent isn't about preparing for Christmas, it's preparing for the coming, that is, the return of the Lord Jesus. In the New Testament, it's not known as the second coming, it's just known as the coming. And that's when everything will be uh, fulfilled. Uh, people may ask, um, what about the Jews? Uh, well, there may be a turning to Christ on the part of Jews. That may be an implication of Romans 9 to 11. Whatever else we say is that the Jews are still beloved for the patriarch's sake. So they should be very high up on our agenda of evangelism. And that may be of special importance to you folk living in Hampstead. You have a great desire to see Jewish people turn to the Lord Jesus. They are still beloved for the patriarch's sake. And there is no place for any form of anti-Semitism. Uh, but we are still waiting for that full fulfillment uh, the, um, the, the Puritans used to talk about the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory the kingdom of grace is what we are now in as Christians, we know that our sins have been forgiven, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are part of the fellowship but we await the kingdom of glory we're going to be touching on that uh, in, a, in a moment, or they used to put it we are in via 
on the way, but not yet in patria, that is, our homeland. And this is what Zechariah is going to talk about in chapter uh, 2. So what is it going to be like? And I want to say, initially, that it's important for people to think about where we're going. Some people say, oh, if you're always thinking about that, you'll be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly use. Well, that's not true. Lord Shaftesbury said that he couldn't think of a waking hour when he didn't think about where he was heading, the kingdom of glory. <coughs> and he was of terrific earthly use. I mean, the, his social legislation, the Factory Act and so on, were tremendous. So almost the more he contemplated where he was going, the more use he was and the more he cared for the people around him. So what's it going to be like? Well, first of all, we read that it's going to be a vast multinational gathering. You see that in verse uh, 4. Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And it's repeated in verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. I'll dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is actually the, the, the third vision. There's a surveyor going round to help them with the rebuilding of the walls. Because uh, in those days, cities must have walls. Uh, if you go to some places in Spain and the south of France, you find a Bastide, sort of still walled cities. I think the only one in England is Blanche Land. Um, but there was a time when every city had to have a wall. Uh, but this city is to be without walls because it's so immeasurably large. The Great Wall of China, Mr. Trump's wall, wouldn't have been big enough uh, to enclose it all. It's going to be so enormous. And what um, Zechariah is saying, you're restricted in your vision. You're, you're maintenance-minded rather than mission-minded. It's going to be a vast multinational gathering. Multinational. And that's what I noticed at um, St. John's. Multinational. And it's going to be absolutely vast. You need to think big. Uh, Bill Gates. I read somewhere that he earns a £1,000 a second. I don't know whether that's true. But he has a big vision. He, he wants a vision... His vision is that there should be a computer in everybody's home. Well, he hasn't met me, because that's not going to take place there. But anyway, <laughs> he's, got, he's got a big vision. And, and uh, Zechariah is saying, look, th think big like that. The Church Pastoral Aid Society used to have as its mission the gospel to every man's door. Um, I've been listening to a chap called Mike Reef, who's uh, started a new church in Dagenham. He is visiting every single home, thinking a big and not only large, but multinational. It's for the whole world. Uh, are you familiar with the Ialta conference when Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill met uh, down the Ialta, I think 1944, really to sort of divide the world after uh, the end of the Second World War? Uh, but there's been no Ialta conference for God. It's not as if he's given um, uh, the Muslim world to, 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 to Muhammad and uh, China to Confucius. No, it all belongs to him. It's for everybody. Uh, it's going to be a vast multinational con uh, uh, congregation. And I think we need to be challenged by uh, Muslims because they've got this uh, vision, haven't they, of uh, um, winning everybody for Islam. But actually it's going to be a multinational uh, con uh, congregation of all nations for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does he say? Verse 6 and 7. Up, up, come, come. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Christ spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens. Up, come, escape to Zion. This vast national, multinational gathering. Come, 
make sure you're part of it. And we want to go around uh, Hampstead and other places saying, come, come, this is for you, it's for everybody. Uh, secondly, there's going to be the divine protection on the way. God is going to look after his people. Verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Uh, in Via, on the journey, I will be with you. Now, there are going to be battles and hardships, so that a little bit later, Nehemiah and Ezra uh, are in Jerusalem, and they have tremendous problems with uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and others. And it's also the history of the Christian church. There's been lots of opposition. Did you ever read um, Killing Fields, Living Fields, story of what happened in Cambodia? 30% of Cambodians uh, were killed uh, and 90% of the Christians. There was huge persecution and we're never told that that won't be the case, although there will be some sort of protection. When Calvin had his seminary in Geneva, a number of uh, French pastors came to be uh, trained there and once they were trained, they went back into France. And the average life expectancy of those pastors was six months before they were executed. And uh, we had speaking to us once, a man called Richard Pratt, who's um, uh, on the faculty of a very fine uh, seminary in the United States. And uh, this is about five years ago. But five years ago, he said, you know, this uh, <coughs> seminary's been going for 35 years, and to our shame, we haven't produced a single martyr. So he recognises that there are going to be martyrs. And yet there's going to be a protection. So he talks about the apple of my eye. Uh, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now I don't you know you realise, <coughs> medics will help me on this, but our eyes are one of the most protected parts of our anatomy. Uh, there are eyebrows and eyelashes and tear ducts and so on. And if you've seen pictures of miners coming out from um, uh, a coal mine, they're covered in, in, in mire and grime, but their eyes are clear because they are protected. And what the Lord God is saying here, yeah, I will keep you as the apple of my eye. Uh, he says the same in uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, 32. Again, <coughs> for, your, for your notes, 32, 9-11. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in his desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its pinions. The apple of his eye, this eagle. The picture is a mother or a father eagle sort of pushing the little eaglets out of the, um, the nest and then hovering to keep them absolutely safe. And it's a word that's only used one other place in the Bible. And it's used in Genesis 1, where we read of the Holy Spirit hovering, protecting. So Genesis 1 begins with God the Creator, who is the Almighty Creator, the Holy Spirit, who is the God who cares and loves and protects. Indeed, the, the Father does that as well. And the God who speaks. So you've got a great doctrine of God right in the opening words of Genesis. But here, the any other place this word of uh, uh, gentleness. Uh, 1572, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, August, the night of August the 23rd, 24th. Catherine of Medici, who was the sort of Jezebel of France, the Lady Macbeth, uh, lured all the Protestant leaders uh, to, to Paris because of Admiral Coligny 
and had them uh, massacred. And it eventually, I think it was Theodore Beza, who was uh, Calvin's successor, confronted the King of France and said, uh, let me know, let me, let me tell you, Your Majesty, that the Church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Yes, they're going to be hammers, but they're going to be worn out because there is the promise of ultimate victory. That's the glorious way in which the Acts of the Apostles ends. Acts of the Apostles, I think, is the one triumphantist book in the Bible. And you remember how it ends. He lived there two whole years, he's poor, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He may have been in prison, but the word was not bound. And that's the, the triumphalist approach. Now, worldwide, we're seeing that. We don't really see it in Western Europe, but elsewhere. Um, Andy Lines, who runs uh, Crosslinks, told me the other day that there's a big turning to Christ in Saudi Arabia. In Nepal, there were, just a few decades ago, just a handful of Christians. Now you're as likely to see a church as a, as a Buddhist temple. Uh, in Iran, Iran is the country that is proportionately seeing most converts to Christianity. And of course, the, the wonderful thing is that with these immigrants, they're coming to this country uh, and they're hearing the gospel here. In China, there are more Christians, I think just about, than members of the Communist Party, and it's growing. Uh, Richard Buse tells the story of an African pastor who went to the local radio station and said, look, um, I'd love to have a slot to, to, to preach the gospel to the um, neighbourhood. And they said, well, the only slot we've got is between five and six in the morning. He said, well, OK, I'll do that. So for several weeks, he preached his heart out on this radio station between five and six in the morning. And then after several weeks, he said, um, look, I don't suppose anybody's been up early enough to listen to this, but if anybody has been up and listened to it and has been helpful, come round to my place for coffee next Saturday. <laughs> 120,000 turned up. <laughs> and I said to Richard, I, when I told the story, I reduced the, the, the numbers, that I said to Richard, that can't be true. He said, Africa, that's the sort of thing that happens. So worldwide, things are happening. They look pretty grim in Western Europe, which is why we need to uh, be prayerful and uh, active. So the Lord is King, lift up your voice. That's the cry, because so, things, so exciting things are happening. Lift up your voice and uh, sing. And then uh, thirdly, not only divine protection on the way, but the glorious presence of the Lord. Sing, verse 10, so we're to sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem, be silent or flesh, because the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What was lost in Eden, that is the presence of the Lord, uh, the Lord God uh, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, was lost. You know that there are people who say that um, all over the world, men and women are looking for God and God is hiding, uh, he's a big tease. But actually the story of the Bible is that God comes looking. Adam, Eve, where are you? Uh, the Lord uh, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who looks for his sheep. So, but that was all, all, all lost. But now it's going to be 
uh, restored. The tabernacle that they built in the, the wilderness was near the people of God, but not actually in their midst, uh, because they had, with the golden calf, they had uh, violated <coughs> him. And then the Lord Jesus comes, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. But then the Lord Jesus goes away. And the state of this world at the moment, in one sense, the king is absent. But by his spirit, he is with us, giving us a foretaste. And then one day, the greatest wonder of heaven will be to see him, to be restored to that intimacy that Adam and Eve had and that the apostles had with the Lord Jesus. There are uh, ten top books that I, I want all Christians to, to read. And number one is uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And you may remember that Mr. Standfast, just before he dies, treads into the, uh, the water, the river. I am now going to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spit upon. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith. Now I shall live by sight. Here and now, it's as though we've got a pen friendship with him. Uh, he speaks to us, his letter to us, his scripture. We speak to him on the phone as we pray. But we don't actually see him. But one day we will. So that um, at the last battle, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says to the, they say to the children, term will be over, holidays have begun, and every day will be better than the one before. That's what we look forward to. There was a saintly uh, uh, parson called Henry Venn, who was the vicar of Huddersfield. And he was dying, and the doctor came to see him, and the doctor said, Mr. Venn, I, I need to tell you that you'll probably die this afternoon. And Henry Venn was so excited that he lived for a further fortnight. Um, <laughs> um, my, my great friend, Mark Ashton. Mark Ashton was um, head boy of his school. He's known as captain of everything, one of those very trying people with a size 10 personality. He was a sportsman, he was a scholar, and he was a leader. Uh, in his gap year, he went off to Pakistan. I think he ran Pakistan for a year. That's sort of size 10 personality. Uh, he became a Christian beginning of his second term at uni and I got to know him quite well and we were talking towards the end of the summer term and he said you know these five months following the Lord Jesus have been worth the whole of the rest of my life put together and this wasn't a failure speaking it was somebody very successful then a few years ago he uh, contracted uh, cancer and um, it was clearly it was going to be terminal and while he was uh, dying in that last year he wrote a book um, on my way to heaven and he was very grumpy with people. Bumbrus wanted to pray for him, that he'd be healed. He said, you're being very selfish. Being very selfish. I want to go to heaven. Um, uh, and he died with that glorious uh, uh, confidence, uh, like Ed Coombs that I mentioned. Jesus is everything. I don't know whether you've come across it. There's a, a book out uh, purporting to be written by the thief on the cross called Heaven and How I Got There. Uh, it's a great book to get. I... Because he was a criminal, I got a number of copies, and I go into Brixton Prison every uh, every week. So um, one year, I sort of gave some of these prisoners, these criminals, that that book. But uh, it was absolute confidence of where uh, we are going. There was a a Christian doctor who was visiting one of his uh, patients um, who was drawing to the end of his life, and the doctor used to take his dog with him uh, on his rounds. And on this occasion, he had left the dog at the foot of the stairs while he went up to the sick man's uh, bedroom. And the patient said to him, um, Doctor, what's it going to be like when I die? 
And at that point, the dog had come up the stairs and was scratching at the door. And the doctor said, you know, hear my dog. Uh, he's heard my voice so that he knows I'm in here and wants to be with me. But of course, he doesn't know what this room is like. And that's our position. Uh, we want to be with him, uh, though we don't all know, don't know all uh, the details. But that is what is promised, the glorious presence of the Lord. So I ask myself, is that what I really want? Is that what I'm looking forward to, to being with him? So what lies ahead? A vast multinational community. Come, make sure you're part of it. It's multinational. And St. John's is a great sort of picture of that, that it's going to be vast. Uh, divine protection. So shout, shout, sing. The Lord is king, lift up your voice. God's glorious presence. Verse 13, be still. Remember that. God's glorious presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much indeed for the picture we have of what one day will be ours. We thank you for the first fulfillment as they got back to Jerusalem. We thank you for the second fulfillment when the Lord Jesus came and was Emmanuel. But we realize that we're now on the way and haven't got to that fatherland yet. And we pray that we will be those who are looking forward to it, that our minds are filled with this vast international community. We thank you for the assurance that we have, that we are as the apple of your eye. And we thank you for the prospect of being with you and of your glorious presence. Pray that in thinking about that, we will be still and silent. For your namesake. Amen. Amen. Amen.